All right, so we're going to continue in our just examination of the high priestly prayer. We're actually going to jump over the part where Jesus is praying for his disciples at the time that he is speaking this. And we're going to run and jump right to the time where he's praying for us. So the thing I want you to come away with today is that Jesus is praying for us. And his prayer is that we would be one and that our unity would testify of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unity makes a statement. When you are unified, it means that the thing that you are most affectionate for is far greater than any of our weaknesses, our sinfulness, our different personalities, our political persuasions, all those things. When you're unified, it makes a statement about what unifies you. And when we're unified as the body of Christ, it makes a statement about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus actually prays that we would be one so the world would believe that he was sent from the Father, that people would believe in the gospel. One of the ways I saw people come together and be unified so much um, had to do with America. It was when the attacks on 9-11 happened. I've never seen people more unified as Americans than that moment. I mean, people were letting you pass on the road. Even around Boston, people were stopping. Everyone was so kind. People would open up doors. It didn't matter if you were Democrat or Republican or where you stood. We all were just American at that moment. Everyone was kinder. Everyone was standing together. And that unity made a statement about what we believe as Americans, our freedom, our independence. It made a statement because we're unified. We see even in Boston, when those attacks happened in the Boston Marathon, what happened? Everyone united, Boston stronger. It made a statement about where we stand and that we stand together and we stand for each other. Our unity makes a statement. And when we are one and love each other and care for one another and pray for one another as the body of Christ, we are causing people to believe in the gospel. It's an important thing. When we know that Jesus, his first prayer, the first thing he prayed for us, his future disciple, was, was that we would be one, you start to make that a life aim. You're on guard against division. You're on guard against gossip. You're on guard against things that would bring division in the body of Christ. So I'm both going to speak about us locally as a small newborn church, 10 months old, but I want to speak globally too because we both want to be unified locally and globally. What does Satan want to do? The work of Satan is to, to divide the body of Christ. And over the past 2,000 years, he's been doing a great job. I can't even name all the Christian subdivisions who actually believe in an orthodox Jesus, a fully God, fully man who died for the sins of the world. You have to put your faith in him for salvation. Jesus is coming back. This broken off into so many parts because Satan has wreaked havoc among the church. And that's why you see me, even though on many secondary things, you won't see me bash other denominations, even the Catholic church. Even though I told you guys, I don't pray to Mary. I don't, I don't believe in those things and I won't promote those things. And as a pastor, I would never teach those things because they're not scriptural. But I think there's going to be many Catholic people in heaven who truly love Jesus and believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I'm not going to be up here bashing Catholics or even Presbyterians. So they baptize babies. 
I'm not going to say you're not my brother or you're not my sister in Christ because you baptize babies. Same thing. Yes, I'm from a Reformed perspective. I believe that Jesus finished the work and you can't lose your salvation. I have many brothers and sisters who love Jesus in the church who have altar calls every week. You know? Because they think people lose their salvation. I don't agree with them, but I'll tell you, I'll be in heaven with them. And we're called and love and worship and believe in the same Jesus and the same grace has been poured out upon our life. So both as a new church... Over the next 30 years, until I retire when I'm 65, our goal will be one, locally, in the local church we're called to. But globally, Restoration Road, we have brothers and sisters who have different denominations and streams of the Christian church who love Jesus, who we want to be unified with, because Jesus prayed for that. And that is very, very important. So let's turn. We're going to do four verses today. And we're going to do John 17, 20 through 24. And I'm proud of you guys. We're almost through the whole book of John. And no one complained and said, why can't we preach three other books before we finish this? So, John 17, 20, it says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So we should be blown away that the God-man, the Son of God, who has always existed, is specifically praying for us. I don't want to just look over that like Jesus had to pray for us or we deserve to be prayed for. Jesus specifically prayed for us in this prayer. He prayed for those who would believe through the preaching of the words of the disciples that he was discipling at that time in his life. He was teaching, he was training these men He was proclaiming the gospel to them and they would go throughout the world and proclaim the gospel to the rest of the world and generations would believe because of this. And 2,000 years later, we're sitting here as disciples of Jesus because people proclaim the word of Jesus Christ. So when he's praying the high priestly prayer, he says, your word, your word when he's praying the Father. This time he says, their word. So I want you to understand how important your proclamation of the gospel is in this generation that it goes to the next. Because it's through the faithful proclamation of the gospel and making disciples over the last 2,000 years that churches are being planted all over the world. Because the Holy Spirit is moving in hearts and changing hearts. And Jesus is praying for us here. Now, people love when they have someone who they feel is holier than them or they feel is ordained to an office. They love when they're praying for them whether it's a priest or a pastor. I get phone calls once in a while and people will say, listen, I need you to pray for this for me. Now, wrongly, some people look down on that because they get carried away with, yes, we all called to be priests. Yes, we are all called to serve one another. But Jesus ordains men to lead communities and to intercede for those congregations. He calls those men to pray, to get in the gap, and to intercede for those they are called to shepherd and love and protect and care for. It's a good thing to ask your spiritual leaders, your pastors, your priests, to pray for you. I remember when I was younger, once in a while the pastor would ask for all the children to come up so he could lay hands on them and pray for them. And I went up there and my my pastor at the time was very unique and he said, dare to be different. I just thought, man, this is goofy, but I'm glad he prayed for me. But I remember being a young man and 
being honored that my pastor prayed for me. Honored that he took the time to be a mediator on my behalf. How much more should we be invigorated and overjoyed and strengthened over the fact that Jesus intercedes for us? That he is praying for us in this text and he intercedes to the Father daily. That should build your confidence as a believer. Because let me tell you, whose prayers get answered? The Son of God. His prayer will come to pass. We will be one. We will be unified. And that will testify of the gospel of grace. Be encouraged that you have the greatest mediator. Yes, we have pastors and spiritual leaders who pray for us now, and they should. But the ultimate mediator between God and man is Jesus, the God-man, who prays for you, who intercedes for you. You don't have to go to a pastor. So if you're in a canyon, right, stuck in the middle of the desert, you don't have to say, man, I don't have a priest that can't pray to God. You can go right through Jesus to God. That's beautiful. He cares for you. He loves you. He's praying for us in these scriptures now. And he's praying for us daily, interceding for us. Be encouraged by that because he loves you enough to pray for you. Verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, the Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So, when you guys pray, I would argue that what's most important on your mind you pray for first. I mean, you want to just get right to it, right? Something's on your heart. Something's burning. You're going through something. You say, I'm going to pray for the thing that's most important first. What's most important to Jesus? The first thing he prays for us, that we would be one. You need to know this because you need to God unity. Why does it say in the scripture? Because it testifies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you figure that he give a few earthly analogies. What he wants our unity to look like. But I'm actually blown away at the analogy he uses. He wants us to be one like the Trinity is one. Like God the Father and God the Son are one. That is the deepest, most unified, eternally existing relationship there has ever been. This is how he wants the body of Christ to love each other and to care for one another. There has never been division in the Trinity. No one ever got irritated with one another. No one ever gossiped. No one ever said, I want to, you know, got into an argument. That never happened. It never will happen. The Trinity will never be broken. And this is the analogy. This is the symbolism he uses that we are called to be one like the Trinity is one. Like him and the Father are one. That should blow our minds. That gives you something to aim for. I should love every person at Restoration Road like God the Father loved God the Son. And God the Son loves God the Father. That's what Jesus is praying. So let's talk about what the relationship looks like in the Trinity a little bit more. First of all, every relationship on earth is a reflection of the community and the relationship that has always existed between the triune God, between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He made man and he made woman to live in perfect community with one another, just like the Trinity lives in perfect community. 
He made families. We have sons. We have daughters. We have brothers. We have sisters. We have aunts. We have uncles. They're all made from the ultimate template of the Trinity. The reason we have families is because God has a perfect family that he has always existed in, yet they are one. Now let's listen to the orthodox definition of what the Trinity is. God eternally exists in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. They are three, but they are one. That is the deepest, most mysterious, most glorious, most wonderful, I can just keep going, relationship that has ever existed. And every family, every relationship is built and exists as an overflow of that relationship. We are meant to live in perfect community and perfect relationship with God as the church. And our love for each other should resemble the love between the Trinity. And what happens when that love resembles the love of the Trinity? People stop believing in Jesus. People believe the gospel. Jesus says believe, people believe that God the Father has sent him. That's how serious it is. They live in perfect community. And one of the verses we're going to say, to be perfectly one. I want that to register in your mind. One of our aims is to be perfectly one. What is the work of Satan? What has sin done? It breaks everything. It breaks marriages. It breaks families. It breaks nations. It divides everything. Ever since sin and Satan entered into this world, things have been broken from Cain killing Abel. There was, there was division. From Jacob against Esau, there was division. And you read throughout the church history, everything got divided because that is the work of Satan. He's accuser of the brethren. He has divided God's people. He has divided people of the earth so that we war against each other. When God is praying that we live perfectly one. Now the battle is that we have a sin nature and this is something inside of us that strives against being unified with people. We always have, see something wrong with each other. We always have a beef with one another. Someone always didn't do that up to our standards. And what does that do? That brings division and that doesn't make us perfectly one. Restoration Road, I want us to hear today that the gospel, Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit should drive us to live as one so the world might know that Jesus is alive. Let's move on to verse 23. I'm sorry, 22. The glory that you have given me, I give unto them, and they may be one as we are one. So once again, he's saying, let them be one as we are one. What glory is he talking about? What glory did God the Father give to God the Son? The glory of dying on the cross. The glory of suffering. The glory of sacrifice. You know something, and we talked about this a few weeks, that should make us one? The fact that we're all suffering and sacrificing together. That makes us one. And I want to keep putting this before you. Because not enough Christians are putting themselves in uncomfortable situations where they have to sacrifice today. And that's an integral part of our faith. What is your cross? What has Jesus called you to suffer through? These are the kinds of things you should be asking yourself. 
Jesus knew what he was called to suffer through, therefore he could bring glory to God the Father. What are you called to suffer through and sacrifice through so you might bring glory to God? Let me tell you one of the things I'm called to suffer through that pales in comparison to martyrs around the world and people who give up their lives and all these things. I'm called to be a bivocational pastor. And let me tell you something. There's days you do not want to get out of bed. When you've got to put in a poop fan for someone, you don't want to get out of bed. Maybe I shouldn't have said poop from the pulpit. I Paul, exhaust fan. When you're climbing through the attic in insulation, you're saying, I'm called to preach to people. I shouldn't be doing this. When you're banging in ground rods, you're saying, man, I'm getting too old for this. You're saying, man, I'm called to the ministry. I shouldn't be doing this. Part of the cross I have to bear is I'm called to be a bivocational pastor. That means I'm called to get my knees dirty like I came home Friday. All mud all over my knees from being in the trenches. Insulation that helps my allergies. And I could go on and on and on. But that's my cross to bear. More pastors should be suffering. I'm... I can't believe what the, the office of pastor has come to in America. Who want to be a pastor? You're making almost six figures, some of these guys. They're taking eight vacations. They're taking a picture of the burrito that happened in New Mexico. You know? These guys are like, who want to be a pastor? What happened to suffering? What happened to laying down your life? What is your cross? Jesus found his glory and he prayed that we would have the same glory, that we'd be willing to suffer and sacrifice and find our cross so that we might bring glory to God the Father. Don't let suffering pass you by. Don't let sacrifice pass you by. Too many people are trying to push it away and live too comfortable. The American dream is not the gospel. Do you guys hear me say that? The American dream is not the gospel. Too many people are saying they're taking up their cross, but really they're taking up their American dream. That's heavy. Everyone's chewing on that right now. Now, am I saying you got to live in a cardboard box and I'm saying don't buy a house? Am I saying don't mow your lawn? Absolutely not. But I'm saying know what your priorities are. And it's about suffering. It's about sacrifice. And it's about lifting the name of Jesus high. Lifting the name of Jesus high. Verse 23. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as I as you love me. Now Jesus keeps almost praying the same prayer over and over again in different verses. And so I'm thinking, Darren, what, what illustration can I use when I've seen when I've seen unity and it has turned me to the gospel? When it has reflected the gospel. When I've seen unity in the body of Christ and I said, Man, this builds my faith. Man, God the Father did send God the Son and it drives me to belief and faith in Jesus. And there are times, I don't want to say there aren't times, I saw great unity at Seven Mile Road, great unity on the pastor team. But as I thought through so many illustrations, so many other things went through my mind. Church splits. Let me ask you, how many church splits have you seen? Relationships broken. I mean, people who are tight in relationship and all of a sudden are never talking again. Wow. Wow. What, what happens when we're divided? What does that say about the gospel? It defames the gospel. It shames the gospel. It turns people away from Jesus. You guys feel the weight of that? I never said that before and Matt Cruz always says that and that just came out. But there's a lot of weight to that. 
And I'm going to tell you something perfectly honest here. Because in my younger years, in my early 20s, I was someone that always took offense at people in the church, if I'm honest with you. No one could ever do anything right in my mind. I had to mature emotionally. I had to mature mentally. I had to most of all get the gospel. And what that made in my life is I was always pointing the fingers at spiritual leaders. Like they never did good enough. They didn't show me enough attention. They didn't do this. You know? And guess what happens? A lot of things got divided in my life. And during those years, you know what I did? I blamed them. I blamed them. That was wrong. The gospel drives us to blame ourselves. The greatest victim there ever was was Jesus. Please, don't waste your life playing the victim card. Listen, there are really victims out there. I'm not saying that we... We aren't victimized sometimes and people don't hurt us and they'll be, I'm saying that. I'm saying a lot of the times we play the victim card when we need to just get a hold of the gospel. I remember one pastor, I left the church, I was offended when I was in my early 20s. I went back and apologized. And still this day I say, man, you know what? I wasn't perfect, he wasn't perfect, but I could have handled that better. And I went right to his doorstep, I drove up, there was no call and I said, listen, I'm here to apologize because I was immature I was feisty in all the wrong ways. And I need to apologize to you. Because now I'm an older man and I realize we're all messed up. There's only one perfect one. And that's Jesus. And when you get the gospel, you can do that. I've seen, listen, I've seen people waste years and years and years. And I've wasted time in my life playing the offense card. None of us have grounds to be offended because of the gospel. Because we got more grace than we ever deserved. And we should be able to love beyond what anyone ever does to us. Please hear that. That's the only thing that can keep us one. And I'm jumping to my application already. But you got to go where the Spirit leads you. The only way we can be one is if we respond to people based on the gospel. And I'll get to that in application. I won't stop firing off already. But let's get to verse 24. It says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Once again, I just want to keep pointing this out because the name of the sermon series is the defined incarnation that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He keeps talking about his pre-existence before the creation has ever began. I just want to build your faith in that, that Jesus is fully God, fully man, the second person of the Trinity. But he prays a prayer that I love that he prayed for us. He prayed that we would be with him in paradise. You're going to love this prayer after you die. He says, I pray that they'll be where I am. Let me tell you something. When Jesus prays for something, it comes to pass. You have to fear nothing. And I didn't mean to get too loud on that nothing. You have to fear nothing. Death has no sting for a Christian. Whether you die old, whether you die young. You're going to be with Jesus. And what unifies people? The fact that they have the same end goal. So I was into the Miami Heat and the San Antonio Spurs playoffs because I'm a Celtics fan first and an anti-Heat fan second. You know what I mean? So I'm rooting for the Spurs because I love everything the Spurs are about. They're humble. 
They're not flashy. They work together. They've been together for 10 years. They're not like these guys just going for big contracts. They're not like to the system of the world. They're playing old school basketball. To my dislike, Ray Allen hit a tough three in game six that extremely bothered me. I had to get my heart right. But then they won the game in game seven. And I'm watching the ceremonies after, and I heard through the whole series, they all said the same thing. They said, and they asked Dwayne Wade, why, why would you have LeBron James come? Because you're not really the star anymore. You're like the wingman. You're Robin now. He said, it's all about championships. It's all about that glory when you win a championship. We're all raising the trophy over our head. That's what unified them. They're unified on this point. They want to win championships. They want to see the same thing at the end of the season. Them lifting the trophies over their head, lifting the trophy over their head, and all the fans cheering for them. We have the same end goal. Every Christian has the same end goal, and that should unify us. And it's not that we're lifting the trophy over our head. We're the fans in the stands. And Jesus is lifted up, and he's glorified. And that's the same end goal. That's what we work for every day and we work for in our life, that we might lift Jesus up. And even in a mysterious way, I can't even understand, in eternity, we're going to behold Jesus in the glory of his Father. And it's going to be the most beautiful, wonderful thing you've ever seen in your life. And you'll never be more satisfied or more joyful or more happy than when you get to witness that unveiled glory when you no longer have to see by faith, but you see with your eyes and you see Jesus in all his glories, glory. That's what you were made for. That is our end goal, to see Jesus lifted up. That's what makes us one. That's what we're working for every day. That's why Restoration Road was planted, so that we can lift up the name of Jesus, proclaim the gospel, and make disciples. That's why everyone's church planning, because more disciples are being made that what? Have the same end goal, to lift Jesus high. That makes us one. So if we're talking about all this unity, let's talk about a few things that promote unity and let's talk about a few things that promote division. And first of all, before we go through a little application, I want to say this again. Remember, Jesus prayed that we would be one so you should make it one of your highest priorities. That you are one with everyone in your church. That you are one with every one of your brothers and sisters in Christ. That should be one of your highest aims. Things that promote unity. Let's start with Jesus. He promotes unity. He brings restoration. He brings reconciliation. And sometimes we can forget that. We know theologically and through the Bible that Jesus' spirit is indwelling all of us. That the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in every believer. That should cause us to be closer Let me rephrase that. The relationships in the church should be some of the closest relationships in our lives, if not the closest relationships in our life. Because we have the same spirit, the spirit of God, living inside of us, indwelling us, giving us the same affections, the same common goal. We're suffering together, and we're striving to see the name of Jesus lifted high. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us that should unify us, and Jesus promotes unity. Second, I want to get back to that point of don't respond to people based on what they deserve. Respond to people based on the gospel. So when you respond to people based on what they deserve, it's an implication that you don't fully get the gospel. What is the gospel? Did Jesus die for us? Honestly, ask yourself a question. Did Jesus die for us because we deserved it? 
Scriptures say over and over again, he died for us while we're still sinners. It's undeserved grace. The gospel is about Jesus dying for us when we didn't deserve it. It's free grace. It's not based on our works. Even when we preached last week, it said God was acting according to his own glory. It said the people were acting profane, but I'm still acting according to my love and mercy, not based on what they are doing. The gospel is not about what we have done. It's what about, it's about what Jesus has done. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve grace. Can we all agree on that? That we're all sinners? And we don't deserve it? Because some people wrongly believe that Jesus looked into the future and thought that you were going to be one of the good people and that's why he chose you. He chose you because of his free grace. He chose you because he's loving in himself. So when you get that gospel, you can respond to people not based on how they treat you. You can respond to them based on how Jesus has treated you. This was revolutionary in my marriage. I'm just going to talk from my vantage point. Natalie can share her vantage point, you know, in another place. At the beginning of my marriage, we loved each other. Everything was great. But a lot of times, know what I did? When I felt she wasn't treating me right, I used manipulation tactics. Does anyone use manipulation tactics? That's it. She's not getting talked to for two hours. She's on punishment. It was all based on, or I would be aggravated because I, I felt like she should have acted a certain way or had a certain tone or, you know, we're both sinners trying to be married. It's, it's not easy. So I am getting aggravated. I'm not talking for a few hours. I'm going to be honest with you. At the beginning of marriage, a few times I said, I'm taking that ride. Has anyone taken that ride? I need to take a ride. And I go take a ride around the lake. Right? Maybe you've been on the ride. Maybe not. Maybe you're holier than me. I don't know. At the beginning of marriage, so I get frustrated, things would be aggravated. But I was responding to Natalie. And believe me, I had my issues, so I'm not saying she's the only one doing something. Please hear me. I can only preach from my perspective. Based on how she treated me. I would hold grudges. We wouldn't talk for a while. Did you ever get the quiet thing? Everyone knows something wrong, but you're still at the kitchen counter and everyone's not talking, doing what they're doing and act like nothing's wrong. Three days later, you're like, what's wrong with you? Can't deal with this anymore. You know, those things would happen because I wasn't responding to her based on the gospel of grace. But when I realized that it didn't matter how Natalie act, acted, it mattered how Jesus acted toward me, and I need to forgive her immediately, I need to love her not based on how she treats me, and she needs to do the same. Please hear, this is all reciprocated, this is the relationship. It changed the way I loved her. It changed the way I cared for her. It changed the way I communicated with her. Because I realized that I didn't deserve the love of God. And I need to respond to the same way. I need not put people on a works-based relationship. So we want the gospel to be free, but we want people to earn our relationships. Right? I'm done talking to them. They're on that list. They're on that list. I don't like those kind of people. They don't meet my standards. That's not gospel-based unity. The only way we can be in unity together as a church is that we're seeing each other through Christ's eyes, through the eyes of the gospel. And when we're loving each other, being patient with each other, forgiving each other, caring for one another, and praying for one another. I can almost guarantee you one thing for people who 
for us who are going to be part of this church for a long time, there's something we're going to need to forgive each other about. Imagine you got into a marriage and you said, the first time I have to forgive you, I'm out of this marriage. The first time I have to show you grace, that's it. So you better get it right. I mean, already people are divorcing. 50% of people divorce. There would be 100% if that was the case. Even more in the body of Christ, we need to respond to each other the way Jesus responded to us and forgive each other according to the gospel. Does that make sense, guys? It's huge. It's revolutionary. Not only in marriage, in every relationship in your life. Your family, your friends. And the third thing that promotes unity is pray for unity. You know, I had someone send me a nasty email this week. As a pastor, you get those. A nasty email. It was totally ungrounded. and I'm used to them now after seven years of pastoring. You know, I thought I would be signing Bibles by now, but people are still sending me nasty emails. And uh, what I did was, and this is God's grace to me, I didn't get, I wasn't mad. I wasn't mad because of the gospel. I said, I need to pray for them. I need to pray for them. I, I can't respond according to that. Know why? Because Jesus died for me when I was a wretched, wretched sinner. There was nothing good in me. And Jesus showed me so much grace. That's the gospel. It's his love that drives us to pray for unity. It's not our love. It's his love that is birthed in us. And that becomes our love. Pray for unity. Pray for people. Love people. Pray for each other weekly and daily. It's so important that we pray for unity. And let's talk about the opposite side of the coin. What, to, what promotes division? Let me start first with Satan. Satan promotes division. What did he do when he was cast out of heaven? He caused a rebellion and took one-third of the angels with him. My girls finally asked me about, are there mean angels the other night when we were doing Bible time? Kira said, they're mean angels. I'm thinking, I'm not going to call them demons yet. <laughs> let's call them mean angels, right? So I told them, and then they got in. I was like, well, Satan, he was an angel, and he wanted to be like God went through the whole story. And I'm telling you, kids, when they hear the first time about angels and demons, they're just like, this is serious. Satan brought division. He brings division. He whispers lies in your mind. And when I say Satan, I'm talking about Satan and all his demons. So most of the time, Lucifer's not taking his time off because he's, he's not omnipresent like God, so people get that confused. They think Lucifer himself walks in the house he has one-third of the angels, so he has a limited army. And at times he uses his demons to whisper lies in your ear, to whisper lies in your mind. Many times through spiritual warfare, you will hear lies in your mind about other people in the body of Christ that aren't even founded or true. That's the work of Satan. Those are one of the things you have to battle the most. Satan will put lies in your mind and in your heart, and it will create division that's not even there. He's an illusionist. He has no real power but to lie and to confuse our minds. All of a sudden, we're caught up in gossip and division and we're splitting things and we're like, what the heck happened? I know people six months later said, what the heck did I just do? Because they were caught up in a lie from the pit of hell. And what is Satan? He's an accuser of the brethren. One of the things he's going to do in your mind, he's going to do among Restoration Road, is try to put a, mind, a lie in your mind about someone else and make you act accordingly. 
We have to be on guard against that. That's the work of Satan. That's the work of his demons. Please hear that. We need to know this to be fruitful and grow. Satan is real. Jesus told us. And many of us have experienced it. Secondly, like I said before, we don't have to stay on this long. When we respond to each other based on a work system, you will not be unified. You will not. When people have to earn your love in a relationship, there'll be no unity in the body of Christ. It has to be based on the gospel. And the third thing, and we're coming to a close here, the opposite of intercession is gossip. People who don't have a healthy prayer life, gossip. Gossip is the intercession that brings division time and time again in the body of Christ. When you want to gossip about somebody, right away in your mind say, I'm going to pray for them, I'm going to intercede for them right now. I will not waste 30 minutes of my life calling my friend or, or just releasing all my frustrations on somebody else. I'm going to get on my knees and I'm going to pray for them because that brings unity. Gossip brings division over and over again. Guys, please hear this. This is an important one. When you want to gossip, pray and intercede. Restoration Road. Thank you for sitting through this when it's a little muggy in here. But I want to finish by saying this and bringing it all back to this. The good news is that Jesus was praying this prayer. Therefore, it will be answered. And I believe it is being answered and will be answered at Restoration Road. That we will continue to be one. And as we are one, that it will bring glory to God the Father and cause people to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.